0: A recurring lesson of this show and our work in general is the idea that freedom dreaming is so profoundly important. But along with that dreaming, we need planning. We need time. And sometimes it's wonky. And sometimes it's slow going.
1: We need the space to dream and imagine. And then we need to craft strategies to bring about the change that our communities need. It takes dreaming and then working hard with each other to make those dreams real. I'm Casey Rashto,
0: Communications Manager at the Detroit Justice Center.
1: And I'm Amanda Alexander, the Executive Director of DJC. Today on Freedom Dreams, wait, before I tell you, just know that though it might not sound sexy, it is participatory budgeting. A city or town (laughs) or organization's budget is a moral document. It reflects our values, uh, what we value, who we value. It's all reflected in our budgets.
0: And from where we sit, it seems that if defunding the police is going to work, it has to start with the people's budget. And the reason for that is, overall, the whole fight to defund the police is really about reprioritizing how we spend our tax dollars in any given jurisdiction. And our priority can't be people who are causing more harm Than good. We need to actually get at the
1: root causes. And a lot of the ways to do that is to dig into the budget. Yes, so today we're going to get micro, we're going to get macro, we're going to go to Seattle to hear about that city's evolution towards a people's budget. Participatory budgeting was first developed in Brazil in the 1980s by the Brazilian Workers' Party. It was an experiment in more radical participatory democracy. It's a process where people decide how to spend part of a public budget together. It's deeply democratic in that people can vote in this process regardless of their age or immigration status or criminal record, for instance. In order to participate, all you need is to be a resident of that community. And it's now used in over 7,000 cities across the world.
0: So in practice, this usually involves five steps. First, you come together and you design a process for engaging the community. The community then brainstorms ideas. From there, you want to develop these ideas into proposals that could be funded. Then you'll vote. And once the vote happens, you'll fund
2: the winning project.
3: To speak a little bit about what... of like how we know each other is through this work that I'm doing now at the Participatory Budgeting Project.
0: This is Shari Davis, co-executive director of the Participatory Budgeting Project.
3: My introduction to PB was when the mayor that I was working for, and yes, I worked in government for 15 years, and I oversaw youth initiatives in a major city, the city of Boston, Massachusetts. And in that role, the mayor asked me to come down to his office and I started with a summer job. So we had known each other for a very long time. And he had asked me to run a participatory budgeting process where young people directly decided how a portion of city government funds would be spent. And I said, yes, sir, that sounds great. I marched right to my desk and Googled what participatory budgeting was. And what I found out was that it was a democratic process in which community members directly decided how government dollars were spent. And I was like, wow, that makes so much sense. And then what I learned was that the participatory budgeting project helped agencies, government, community do that and center equity while they did it. So I reached out, we started to build a relationship. They taught us in in Boston how to do participatory budgeting. And it was the first instance in the country where young people that decided a portion of government funds, a million dollars of government funds, and it was 12 to 25-year-olds that wrote the rules for the process, ran the process, um, voted on what was going to happen, and then saw those things implemented, and they still run it now. I don't work in the city of Boston anymore because I fell in love with the transformative power of participatory budgeting. My goal from the beginning was how do I get, this was the question that I had as a 16-year-old, how do I get the same feeling when I walk into my neighborhood grocery store, and I had a good neighborhood grocery store, how do I get the same feeling of welcome here when I walk into City Hall? How do I have an experience where my community is present, is in, is in power, is flourishing, is showing up for each other in a government building? And what I found in the 15 years that I worked there was I saw a little bit of things happening. But when we started doing participatory budgeting and folks had the opportunity to understand the budget, understand their role in shaping change, understand that, wow, not only is this a moral document, but it needs to live and breathe with us. And I have an opportunity to do that. That's when I started seeing the butts in the seats change in government. That's when I started seeing that grocery store feeling grow. And that's when I said, I need to be a part of this. Um, And that's what I fell in love with. And that's now why I lead the Participatory Budgeting Project with an amazing team of people that are so committed to this work.
1: So in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd last summer and the killings of Breonna Taylor and Tony McDade and so many others, people took to the streets across the country. And the demand uh, you know, across so many cities was defund the police. And we know that this is not a new demand. Um, movements for a very long time have been talking about divest, invest, and community reinvestment, but it rang out with more force than it ever had before last summer. And while so many pundits and you know, people were obsessed with you know trying to decide was this the right slogan, um, you know is this what or- organizers should be saying? Is it counterproductive? Is it hurting Democrats in the elections? Uh, meanwhile, organizers were busy you know, doing the work of organizing. They were supporting families who were impacted by police violence. They were um, looking at city budgets and figuring out how much is actually being spent on police and asking communities what we could spend money on instead. And those demands have been incredibly successful. So in the first 10 months of organizing, organizers in more than 20 cities won over $840 million in direct cuts from U.S. police departments, and they won investments of at least $160 million in community services. Over 25 cities canceled contracts with local police departments operating in schools, saving an additional $35 million. And organizers also won bans on military-grade equipment um, in six cities and on the use of facial recognition software in four cities. Um, So it's been an incredibly powerful year of organizing, and yet at the same time, we need to be clear that this is a very small percentage of the amount of money that we spend on police in the U.S. But we're going to dig deep today into one of the most successful campaigns out there, and that is the work in Seattle. And so today we are talking with Angelica Chassero of Decriminalize Seattle, and oh my God, she is brilliant
0: for a lot of organizers who are abolitionists last summer, we saw this huge uptick in people calling for abolition and defunding police. And I'm curious, what did you notice about that shift in Seattle specifically? And what do you think it might mean going forward for this work?
2: Yeah, sure. So last summer um, we had a moment where there were so many people hitting the streets, but there weren't yet demands out about what it is that people wanted to see. Right. Um, And so uh, we saw the demands coming out of the movement for black lives, particularly around defund. And so a group of us came together and crafted the three demands that we ended up pushing out to the city and that were widely embraced, which was defund the Seattle Police Department by 50%, reinvest in black and brown communities um, and freeing all protesters, because of course there was massive repression of protesters happening at the time. Um, and what I noticed that was different from other times was simply the speed by which those uh, demands were taken up. Who keeps us safe?
3: DEMANDS TO DEFUND SEATTLE POLICE MOVED TO THE LOBBY OF CITY HALL LAST NIGHT WHEN COUNCILMEMBER SHAMA SAWANT LET ACTIVISTS IN.
0: FIRST time IN THIS BUILDING AND WE'RE MAKING
3: HISTORY HERE, GUYS. TODAY, PEOPLE IN THIS CROWD WERE AMONG THOSE WHO CALLED IN TO THE FIRST CITY COUNCIL MEETING SCRUTINIZING SPD'S BUDGET.
2: OTHER FIGHTS WE'VE HAD HERE. Uh, Like the fight to stop the building of a new youth jail, it took us literally years with some groups and organizations and individuals to get them to sign on to the idea that we didn't need a new youth jail. Um, So literally, like years of meetings and getting being told no over and over again. Uh, But with last summer, what we saw was that you know within hours of, of, of our demands going live, we had literally hundreds of organizations signing off on those um, and tens of thousands of individuals. And so I think that people were ready you know, to, to imagine something radically different. And part of it was being primed by years of abolitionist fighting that had already happened. And part of it was the extreme pressure on the streets and, and sort of that, that space for imagining something new that had opened up.
1: And then where did things go from there um, in terms of actually shifting allocations or positions?
2: We said, uh, move this funding to community primarily through participatory budgeting um, because part of the way that we've gotten into this problem of police budgets endlessly growing is the fact that you all are deciding in ways that are not accountable to community every year and your decision is always grow the budget. Um, And we think if we called the question in community, what we would actually see is the money growing to things that would make policing obsolete altogether. Um, Third, we said, Uh, We want Black community in particular to lead this participatory budgeting process, and in order to do that, uh, we need to have a research process where we're asking people in the next few months what it is that would help them be safe, what it is that would help them thrive, and so we need an immediate investment of $3 million in a Black-led participatory research process. We also said, we know that harm happens in the community. We know that people's basic needs need to be met, and that will really go a long way towards reducing the need for SPD, but that we also need non-police responses to harm. And so we want to see you scaling up your investments in the community organizations and groups, and the groups that could exist if they were funded at the level the police is funded, that are responding to harm. Um, And then finally, we said, we know that when people's basic needs are met, the need for police goes down. So we need to see more funding and housing immediately. Um, And so that was a summer fight, right? And so out of that, we got a $13 million investment in uh, immediately scaling up uh, non-police responses to harm, which of course immediately (laughs) ended up meaning that the money went out literally last week. (laughs) So it took a year. Um, (laughs) We got the money for the $3 million research process and that did begin immediately and wrapped up at the end of February. Um, And uh, we got some initial defunding. So we saw SPD's uh, budget go down for the rest of the year and the police and council said things like, "We don't want to see the horse cops funded anymore because who needs, you know, <laughs> cops on horseback? Uh, we don't want to see um, uh, so much money going into training because we'd made the case that, you know, endless." Uh, it- trainings on on a bias are really not going to get us to the world we want. Um, And so council went for it um, and they did some small initial cuts. um, And then the mayor vetoed that entire budget because of those cuts and those investments in community. And so then we spent all of August fighting to override the veto because council was starting to waver, particularly because they got a lot of national pushback Mm. because we had... Uh, a black chief of police, who, as part of the cuts, um, her salary was cut down. Uh, all of the management in the SPD saw some cuts to their salary in that summer funding, and in part that's because almost all of SPD's money is in salaries, and the salaries of the non of of the non-union members, which includes management, could be cut, and so. Council took some cuts there. The chief of police quit saying, you know, uh, the defund movement is, is forcing me to leave. And council did not know what to do with a black chief of police leaving uh, and the mm. backlash that ensued. Um, and so we fought uh, the, to override the veto. And up until literally when the last vote was taken, I didn't know if we had it, but we were able to override that veto. So that was wonderful. Mm.
1: Except we had literally a one
2: week break before the fall budget process started for the next year's budget.
1: Incredible. Yeah. Um, So in terms of that $3 million allocation for participatory research, can you talk about what that looked like? And what were some of the things that people were saying were the types of investments that they wanted in their communities? Yeah,
2: of course. So this was a a partnership. So the Blueprint was was co-written by two coalitions, Decriminalize Seattle, which I'm part of, and King County Equity Now, which was a coalition at that point as well. Um, And so King County Equity Now, um, two of the the folks who were organizing with them at that point took the lead on that um, and, and created something called the Black Brilliance Research Project. Right. And they hired over 100 community um, members from orgs uh, who people who had never considered themselves uh, researchers to begin with many of them you know at least half of them formerly incarcerated to ask those different questions of like what what it is that would help you thrive and the answers were not surprising um, but were great to see you know so people talked about the 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 lack of not just a lack of like mental health care but the lack of mental health care that spoke to them in their community um, people talked about um, you know the, the barriers to, to housing that people face people talked about the need for youth programming particularly in the height of COVID, um, when there was nothing happening for youth in the summertime, um, you know, no one, you know, very, very few people talked about, you know, we just need to see more community policing. We need to see more cops of color from our communities in the forest. Like literally it just, it just wouldn't come up. And so, um, Yeah, it was an amazing process uh, that ended up with a 1,000-page report that went to council um, and that also spelled out the way that people wanted to see participatory budgeting happening, right? Because the point of this was to say, when the city invests much of the 2021 budget, which was our demand in participatory budgeting, uh, this research should set the priority so that even though Seattle is a majority white city, we will see Black folks' priorities reflected in the kinds of projects that can even, are even eligible to be funded uh, in, this, in this process.
1: Awesome. And so the participatory budgeting pr- uh, process, that's being rolled out, or where does that stand? <laughs>
2: Right. So of the many lessons learned this year is that, uh, you know, I learned exactly what the possibilities are with working with council, but also their limits. Uh Because if you uh, have a mayor, as we do right now, who will be leaving office at the very end of this year, um, who does not support uh, the community vision for defunding the police and and reinvesting those funds in, in black and brown communities, they can put a lot of stop to Mm. (laughs) um, and really slow things down. And so what, you know, I I mentioned before that we got that $13 million investment um, in, in scaling up, um, community-based alternatives, there's a reason it took us one year to finally get that money out. And it was because the mayor dragged her feet at every moment. And, you know, so not only would we win these things and we'd have to run campaigns to like free the funds from the from the city agencies that were not holding them um, and pushing back on the mayor. And not only that, then we'd have to like get involved in, in, in trying to make sure that the requests for proposals that went out didn't just say, we're funding co-responses with the police, come work with the police. We were like, no, 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 no that's not what the blueprint said. Yeah. And so similarly for participatory budgeting, uh, the mayor decided to form a, uh, a, a competing task force. And she said, you know, I'm inviting, you know, 15 to 20 people to sit on this task force. And I'm announcing that I'm going to be giving money towards mm. uh, BIPOC communities. First, she said black communities. And within a week, it was BIPOC communities. You know, so already like less money for black folks directly. Um, and, and uh, you know, basically we don't need PB because I'm going to have a task force. Um, and so then we ended up spending a lot of time organizing mm. community members to not sit on that task force because we knew that was, again, no way for the mayor to to, to pull control of this process. And we were particularly opposed to the task force because the mayor refused to see that those investments as at all connected to divesting from police. She said, oh, you know, we can have investments over here and over here, you know, I'll think about reimagining policing, but those two, you mm-hmm. know, shall never meet. Whereas we were saying, no, we want money directly going from SPD into community hands and we don't want you to have anything to do with it or people who feel beholden to you because of the invites you've made. Um, and so, yes, um, we pushed for you and finally participatory budgeting is sitting with the city agency the office of civil rights who is running the pb process um, but it has taken a full year and we still uh, are working on rolling that out um, and so moving into this fall budget you know our demand is to basically double that pot of pb because when it finally gets off the ground we want you know this struggle to have gotten so many funds in it to have been worth it um but that you know to best that really showed the the need for um not just, like, getting the wins, but then tracking implementation sort of, like, doggedly, Mm. because I think, you know, we realize the city specializes in sort of, like, um, advancement by press release, so it's, like, the announcement of the task force is the thing that, you know, there will never be any follow-up, but, like, the announcement that that's it, that's it, that was your victory, And, and we actually when we were pushing back on the task force, went back and looked at the years of of, um, task forces this mayor and all the previous mayors had had done and, like, what what change actually came of them. And there was so little, like, for so many of them, literally the press conference announcing the task force was the end of it in Mm -hmm. terms of actually getting some change. And so, you know, I... toyed with like an abolished task force in <laughs> as well because you know it just seems like such a disorganizing mm-hmm, tactic
1: mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know that that we constantly see as as a solution to our, our radical demands yeah.
0: that feels familiar to me <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um i was curious about i was reading about how at a certain point last year, police, like 911 calls, got cut in half essentially because police stopped calling in suspicious activities. And during that period of time, there was also this delayed response time in 911 calls. Can you talk a little bit about what you either know or suspect happened during that time and sort of like the ways police have played a role in stalling some of this change?
2: Sure. Yes. Um, And so I think especially moving into the fall budget cycle, which we haven't even talked about, but that was a whole different fight. Um, We saw a lot of police um, basically being deployed to uh, to the protests right because there were still protests there was a, the Capitol Hill Occupy protest chop or you know Capitol Hill autonomous zone as it was renamed right Chaz happening and, and so there was a, there was a huge amount of police resources um, being um, deployed on protests that combined with and we were hearing this directly from community members who were saying look I want to support you you know but I own this business and you know in in uh, the international district like or Chinatown and, and I called the police the other day and they said oh sorry we can't help you because we've been defunded you know And so, and the vote hadn't even been taken yet, right? And so, um, and and that is a message we continue to hear today that the police are responding to any request for community help. Well, we wish we could show up, Mm. but we've been defunded so we can't, right? So partially, it was clearly, um, to me, it seemed like a labor slowdown, right? <laughs> like, it, you know, it's just like, these are workers who've decided that they will slow down as a, as a form of protest to what they see as like an impending uh, slash in, in, their, in their ability to keep breaking in mm-hmm. millions every year from the city budget. Um, at the same time, you know, it, it, sorry, babies here at the same time uh, the, the our priority uh, was to see less contact between the police and the community. So in some ways we're like success, right? Like if the, the cops have come back and said, you know, we're only able to focus on priority one and priority two calls, Priority three literally gets into stuff like somebody threw a snowball at me. Like it's literally one of the the examples. So we were like, great, that's actually a success. Like you're crying about that and saying you need more funding. We're saying that's a success because it means that you're actually focusing on what you should have been focusing on this whole time, which is like uh, the most dire situations where at this point we might possibly want an armed response, although I think even that's questionable, right? Um, And so we've been trying to flip it and say, no, 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 like, this is moving in the right direction. We're seeing cops leave the force at unprecedented rates and retiring, which is the best way, you know, to shrink the force uh, without getting into uh, many of the labor fights. And we're seeing cops actually focusing on priority one and two calls when we know, you know, that even those they don't do well and priority three and four should never have been on their list of, on their to-do list to begin with.
0: And we will be back with Angelica after a quick break.
2: Hello, I'm
4: Boomy, and I'm the Director of HR and Operations at the Detroit Justice Center. People might have certain ideas about what it means to run operations for a nonprofit organization, but a huge part of my job is making sure that our work behind the scenes is just as innovative and responsive to our team's needs as our public-facing work. Over the last year and a half, we began working from home, which meant ensuring that our staff had adequate resources in terms of both equipment and capacity. We moved to a four-day work week, implemented recharge weeks, instated expansive policies around COVID, and did all that we could to ensure our staff members felt cared for during these unprecedented times. One way to join me in supporting our staff is to donate to DJC to sustain our work. Learn
0: more at detroitjustice.org donate. What are some of the, the orgs or institutions that are sort of replacing or looking to replace the police?
2: Right, right. So I, I think I kind of split them into two categories, right? One is like, the fight for meeting people's basic needs. Like one of the things we saw during this time was a lot of people moving from congregate shelter to non-congregate shelter. And when we saw populations of like houseless folks living in non-congregate shelter, the calls to 911 just went down like tremendously, right? Because when people have like somewhere to mm-hmm. store their stuff, they don't have to move every day. They have a bathroom that's their own. Um, you know, you, you just see less the less of the kinds of situations that, that lead people to call 911. So that's one. And there's a lot of orgs in the city who've been pushing really hard for uh, I- increase in progressive revenue, um, and actually had a big win last year. Uh, a bill called Jumpstart went through that finally taxed um, the payroll of some of our companies in town, including Amazon. Um, you know, one thing that I always think about is that you know Amazon in one day makes eight billion dollars, and the entire <laughs> fund uh, for the city of Seattle for a year is six billion dollars. So you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, are we even fighting the right fight? Here we are fighting over maybe you know mm-hmm. tens or hundreds of millions from police, where we could be and should be expanding the sort of progressive revenue that's coming into to to actually meet people's basic needs that would transform any need for policing at all. So that's one, right? So there's like a strong coalition of folks who have been pushing and winning progressive revenue to meet people's basic needs, particularly during COVID. Um, And so that was one win. And then on the other side, we see the orgs who have been doing that sort of um, work of like violence interruption. Uh, We have orgs like API Chaya here, uh, who've been doing the work of uh, developing transformative justice models for domestic violence. Um, We have orgs like Choose 180 um, that have been doing diversion work, creative justice um, with young people uh, to keep them out of the criminal punishment system. And then we have all these small orgs, actually, you know, the, the $13 million we want to go out to community orgs, the over 70 different community organizations applied for those funds. And that was more than has, you know, the folks at the city told us, oh yeah, we usually don't get that kind of response, which to me showed that there's actually, you know, a lot of folks who were ready to do this work if they had support. And of course it's complicated to then become like a city grantee. And what does that mean for all of these small orgs that have been all volunteered, you know, until this moment and and a lot of pitfalls there. Um, But there's, you know, groups like Sacred Community Connections, you know, there's a lot of, you know, small in many cases, black led orgs um, who have been trying to sort of uh, move into this space um, and for the first time are getting sort of funding uh, and recognition for that work.
1: Awesome. Could you talk? So I just want to kind of close the loop on the budget fight, because um, I know that there was the, the fall cycle. That loop never closes. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> if only. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, in terms of what was actually won, I mean, you know, the commitment was to shed up to 100 officers and then ended up actually being closer to 200. Can you break that down?
2: Sure. Yeah. So in the fall, you know, so, so we've wrapped up our fight. We've overturned the veto. A week later, the fall budget process begins. Um, in that process, we vastly expanded our coalition. A lot of the orgs who had signed on to the to the call to defund SPD by 50 percent. Some of those orgs were involved in that progressive revenue mm-hmm. fight I, I had spoken about. Um, and so we formed a coalition called Solidarity Budget to say, you know, our calls for defunding SPD and for a green New Deal for Seattle and for housing for all and for transit. All of these are overlapping. You know, our calls mm-hmm. for indigenous sovereignty. All of this all of these things are connected. And so we're not gonna let you play us against each other as you usually do city council and mayor to fight for these like budget dollars. We know where the money should come from, see SPD's budget. Um, and we'd like you to fund this whole group of things. And so that coalition came together and we fought together. Um, and so every time someone had a meeting with council say to you know lobby for the green new deal, they'd also be saying, and by the way, we support defund SPD. That's where the money for these new positions should come from, right? And so we had each other's back through the fall process and we ended up Uh, Cut so SPD's 2020 budget was 409 million and their 2021 budget was 362 million, right? Um, And of that, um, you know, that doesn't fully capture the cuts because we had 35 million dollars in cuts, so that included uh, 35 layoffs that were planned, which haven't yet happened. (laughs) We're working on that, defunding all the vacant positions, um, cuts to overtime, and cuts to training, and then separately. $40 million in transfers. And that involved moving SPD functions out of the department, which was part of our blueprint, right? So part of our demand was civilianize 911 dispatch because we knew that as long as dispatch stayed in SPD, the response would likely be very police focused, right? And so um, 911 dispatch got fully moved out of SPD. Parking enforcement officers got fully moved out of SPD, which was another demand we had. Um, Domestic violence advocates got moved out of SPD um, and also all of the administration that goes along with them. And the city created a new division And so all of that was 40 million in transfers. And we counted all of those as part of the defund because it's no longer part of SPD's budget. Um, Right. And then we also... eliminated uh, position authority, which is something, you know, that that I wouldn't know about except for Andrea Richey, and thank goodness for her. um, She was saying it's not enough to cut the money, you also have to cut the position authority so that if, you know, we get the backlash that we are all expecting and already getting, they don't immediately just refund those positions. And so we cut the the, uh, position authority. um, In 2020, it was 1,497 officers. And in 2021, it was Thirteen fifty-seven, right? So that was one hundred and fifty positions, basically, that they can, you know, that that they can no longer hire for, that they'd have to go back and make the case for. Um, uh, And so those positions, um, you know, have really shrunk the force. But even then, that that means that for this year, they're fully funded for thirteen hundred officers. But the force is much smaller than that because so many people have been leaving. And a, a fight we lost was we said we don't want you to have any funding in this budget. For filling those positions up to back up to the thirteen hundred number, because you know no new cops ever again, and that's not a fight we've won yet, because council is still, or at least some people of council are still of the mind that you know no, because these new cops were are hiring, you know they speak many languages, they're people of color, they're women, isn't that better than these like old white cops that are retiring, right? And so that's still mm-hmm. like a cultural battle, uh, another political yep. battle we're fighting. Um, but they can't go above the 1,300 um, and they won't be able to, right? Because right now more cops are leaving than are being hired. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, oh, and we got $30 million towards participatory mm-hmm. budgeting. So that's the money that will yeah. be given out. So mm-hmm. that
1: was. So I'm curious about any lessons learned in terms of moving a coalition in this way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is is starting the conversations as early as possible. Um, because I, I think people are very used to coming together and thinking about what are the demands for their particular sector for the next year's budget, but are not necessarily in conversation with each other. And maybe you'll see like a human services coalition or like an environmental justice coalition, but but actually bringing those people together yeah. to talk to each other. And this is what last summer just sort of did, you know, um, you know I think all of these organizations that were... Um, wanting to put out these like, you know, very supportive public statements about black lives matter. We were like, great, you know, those statements are nice, but would you sign on to these demands that defund with 50%? So I think in part mm-hmm. calling the question and saying, can we get you to see this fight as your fight? Um, and here's a reason uh, that we think it is part of your fight. Um, uh, and, and so part of it is that part of it, I mean, Th- there are folks who were not part of our coalition, right? And I think also like being okay mm. with that. Like we're not, you're not going to capture everyone. Like there's folks in Seattle who are still very invested in the idea that we could have, right. you know, community control of police, or that we could have some sort of like perfect accountability mechanism that's better than the the one that we've, you know, invested a hundred million dollars through through a consent decree for the past ten years that hasn't, you know, worked to stop the police from being murderous and racist, right? Um, and so I think um, being willing to to ask and meet with everyone, but knowing that it's okay if you don't catch up, capture everyone, right? Um, and being willing to go back and, and just ask again. And so there's folks who, who said no to us last year, who, you know, I'm not giving up on them. Like, we're going to go back to them and ask again and be like, hey, here's where we are this year. Um, you know, what about now? Do you think you could join now? And, and I think those were lessons that we learned again through like previous fights, like trying to stop a, a youth jail is, is um you know, don't give up on people's capacity mm-hmm. to, to change mm-hmm. their mind. Um like people will, uh, you know, can and will uh, change uh, their points of view and and that's all right. And also, you know, right now we're fighting uh, against the consent decree, which we're still under the Department of Justice consent decree is now being used as an obstacle to defund the police. Right. right? The, the 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 court and the monitor and even mayor and city council are saying, well, we can't take the money away from 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 the police, because then how do we have money to train them to not uh, be racist and kill people? Right. And we're like, no, 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 this is this is completely backwards. Like those functions, you know, uh, everything the police does could be done better in community. Um, and so we're trying to build a coalition of people now to say the consent decree should not be used as a barrier to defunding SPD. Um, and I, you know we're having those hard conversations and a lot of the folks we're talking to are going to be part of that coalition, but they still believe the consent decree is a good idea. They just don't think it should be used to, to bar defunding. And some of the folks are like, the consent decree was a terrible idea. And always felt that way. And some folks were like, I thought it was a good idea, but now I think it's a bad idea. But we, you know, we have to find the language, which is consent decree should not be a barrier, which can bring as many people under that umbrella as possible. And then, you know, know that we're going to have principal disagreements about the actual utility of the consent decree, but that's not what we're fighting for. What we're fighting for is don't you use it as a barrier. So I think some of it has been like, what is the language that you can yes. use to bring people together and still allow for you know, principle disagreement, but still have it be a non-reformist wow. reform, right? Still have it be something that's pointing us mm-hmm. towards abolition. Like, we could have decided to just cut out anyone who doesn't, you know, isn't ready to give up on the consent decree, and we haven't, you know, because I think, I still think we could bring folks to our side. They probably still think we could, they, we could be brought to their side, um, but ultimately, we all believe in defunding, so I think that's another lesson. I am
0: sort of curious about I guess it goes along those lines, right? I'm thinking about sort of people who are going to be outside of this coalition, but maybe some of the people who were like store owners who called and the police said, well, we can't help you because we've been defunded. What do you say to those people to sort of convince them that this is the good fight? Or do you try to win hearts and minds in that way? And then I'm also thinking, like, for people in other cities, the question is that we always come up against is, like, if we defund, is anarchy going to rule? (laughs) You know, are we going to just have crime rampant in the streets? So, like, what would you say to those people sort of in other cities, uh, Mm -hmm. talking about Seattle as an example also? Yeah.
2: Right, right. Um, You know, I think particularly, and and we see this a lot with our downtown businesses, it's a discussion, and we did meet, in fact, with, with, you know, last summer, there was no one who I said no to in terms of a meeting. Like, at some point, we were training the Seattle Seahawks. We were training all the owners of the stadiums. We were training, we were doing trainings for for the Downtown Seattle Association, which is our, our, like, Chamber of Commerce. Like, I would meet with anyone to try to have this conversation. And I think a way into this conversation is, like, how's policing working for you now? <laughs> like how, how, are, how, are, how are, do you feel safe? Do, do you feel uh, taken care of? Do you feel like the police can actually prevent the things that, that, that are difficult for you in, in, in your business model right now? And usually, you know, once we get to that conversation, the answer is no right? Um, And so I think starting to talk to folks about what do you think would actually, you know, what would it mean for you to have safety? What does safety actually mean to you? Um, What would it mean if, you know, instead of having like uh, transit cops on all our buses, we had like a young person who was a concierge and like every bus had their own concierge and like had a playlist and greeted people and then like had people on there, like what are the kinds of solutions we can imagine for um, creating community, creating safety? um that might look different from from what's happening right now. And I, you know, I think particularly in Seattle, because of the the huge number of, of folks who are homeless, you know, we talked to folks about like if people were housed and had their basic needs met many of the problems that you see as problems outside your business would simply not be happening. And so, you know, how could we work together towards that? Um, because you've seen the investment, you know, double, you know, SPD's budget just grows by leaps and bounds every year. Um, and, and that's not working. Right. So it's just, you know, we can at least be on the same page that like what's happening right now is not working. Um, and you know it's time to try to invest in something different because doing the same thing over and over again, you know, and expecting different results is you know isn't going to get us to the world we want. But it's really you know it, it's an uphill battle because I think what what they're doing, which is just literally adding more money to the budget and trying the same things over and over again with maybe some maybe some new kinds of training thrown in, you know, to to address bias. Um, is different, like making police obsolete means that we have to end homelessness. We probably have to make transit free. We probably need to extend the eviction moratorium like permanently. Um, we need more progressive revenue to do all of these things. Uh, we need to build out non-police ways of responding to harm. Um, we need mental health responses that we do build not to replicate state violence, right? Like it's so many different things uh, that are required if you actually want to make police obsolete in city. Um, the city. And the other side is just like more of the same, more guns, you know, more, more cages, more jails. And so I think that's part of the problem is you kind of have to get folks on board with this vision of, of full on transformation, not just, um, you know, let's replace a cop with a civilian cop who, you know, who's friendly, but can still like have you committed to a mental institution. Like that's not what we want to see.
1: Awesome. That Along those lines, I mean, so the last question that I have is, um, you know, they're, they're, I'm wondering what you think is the power of defund the police as a demand. Um, I... I think so often, it's like, you know, there's been this uh, national debate about, you know, the semantics of it. And is it right? Is it wrong? And it's like, and meanwhile, folks like you and and others in Seattle have just been organizing (laughs) to get it done and not worrying about is this the right phrase to be using. So I'm curious as someone who has been in the trenches this whole time, not necessarily caught up in arguments about semantics, what do you think is the power of the defund the police demand?
2: I, you know, I think a lot of it is it pushes back on this idea that, like, police and police budgets are inevitable, right? That they're just going to be part of our landscape forever and they're going to keep growing. And to me, like, the power of abolition and abolitionist demands, like, defund the police are that questioning that, like, there's something natural about police budgets being huge. And I think a lot of the pushback we hear is because people are like, oh, no, 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 but that, I thought that was common sense, that, like, more police equals more safety, right? And so it's that interruption of, of the common sense that we've received and that so many people are pushing back on and just flat out rejecting right Um, and for the folks for whom um, it has been common sense but 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 are now forced to question what they believed about it you know you need to hear defund and not something softer because the softer thing might not actually lead to that to that rethinking that's going to push you into the action and like be the thing that tips you into calling into council for the first time and like testifying because like you have this new idea and and you believe in the possibilities you know that it paints Um, yeah
0: That was Angelica Chassaro with Decriminalize Seattle. We've linked to their campaign in our show notes. And so we wanted to connect Angelica and the fight in Seattle with another, another situation here in Detroit where they've, a group of local activists have engaged in a participatory budgeting project, have created a coalition for a people's budget. Uh, But I think probably about, you know, 95% of listeners are going to be in cities where the fight to defund or create a people's budget is not as far along as Seattle is. So we just want to say, if you are an organizer, don't worry. Not everybody is where (laughs) Seattle is right now. Um, And we wanted to give you a little insight into what's been happening here in Detroit with another genius organizer and comrade of ours,
4: P.G. Watkins. Uh, I'm P.G. I use they, them pronouns. I'm an organizer, facilitator, and trainer. I started organizing and have been organizing for the past several years around police and prison abolition and have kind of moved on to continuing to organize around Black liberation, queer liberation, And also, did some work last year organizing um, a coalition for the budget for the city.
1: And then, how did the campaign unfold, or what happened over the course of the summer and into the fall?
4: Yeah, so we did a lot of preliminary research on the budgeting process. We talked to city council members um, about the process, like what actually, trying to understand the points of intervention, right? Like, where actually can we intervene on this process? Where are the things kind of already in motion? Um, So yeah, learning that, we did a lot of research. We did several like community outreach moments, you know, different town halls, both virtual and kind of some street team stuff. Our partners um, like BYP 100, like Detroit Action, like Detroit People's Platform, did a lot of communication and like research and outreach with their members and just trying to understand like what demands resonate and what actually makes sense for us to be asking for, um, and then it got time to actually start mobilizing folks because it was like, okay, okay, <laughs> they they're starting all this stuff. Um, I can't remember when. I think in like December maybe is the earliest time where things start brewing around the camp around the uh, around the budget, and so we were doing. Um, a lot of work trying to lead up to like mobilizing folks to be present we learned and I think something that I just am learning in general about the life cycle of a campaign or a coalition is that we have to really be uh careful about how we're expending energy how are we sustaining energy how are we able to be present with the same momentum Mm -hmm. and hype for the long haul um, and so, you know, we were organizing this campaign in the midst of an uprising, mm-hmm. we were organizing this campaign with folks who, um, were actively responding to the pandemic. Right. And we were organizing this campaign in a year of so much loss and grief and just why, like, you know, it's just a lot of like, why, <laughs> why am I yeah, yeah. here? <laughs> you know what I mean? What is, what is life? Very big. Yeah. What is life here? Mm-hmm. You know, um. And so, yeah, there was a moment, I think in the fall, right when we would have expected our us to be at our most active, right? In our timeline that we we planned, you know, months before we had our timeline for the year and we just knew that these months would be the ones that we were the most active. We were out in the community, you know, da, da, da. People were exhausted yeah. and burnt out and just tired. And like, it's hard. I think the thing around... a uh, the contradiction and the complexity around a coalition is that, you know, you want it to be a space that folks prioritize and that folks contribute to really consistently and all that. And also it's not their organization. Their organization is a part of this thing. Mm -hmm. Their organizations are doing a million other things, right? And responding in a million other ways to crises and on their campaigns and all of that. So trying to organize a coalition, the whole thing around like leadership and direction and consistency, I think coupled with just the general feeling of exhaustion and burnout and, and, and just, yeah, slowness that we had to deal with. And I think for me, it's less about focusing year by year. And it's like, can we think about the next five to 10 years? Mm. What is the plan for kind of developing this over the long haul? Because I think trying to do things with such a quick turnaround and like expecting either a win or a loss after that feels kind of what like what contributes to the lack of continuity and sustainability you know um so yeah that's kind of my (laughs) ramble about how the coalition was and yeah how well we did
1: pg we have a final question that we ask of all of our guests on the podcast since it is called freedom dreams Um, could you tell us what are your freedom dreams for your work? So thinking 50, 100 years out, what would you hope would be the legacy of the work that you're doing?
4: There's that sigh. There's the sigh. (laughs) Um, I hope that the work that I'm doing today makes room for all children and all young people to have a childhood, like to just be able to be children um, and worry about childish things until, you know, it's an insult to be called childish or whatever.
3: Yeah, um, I
2: mean, I I hope that 50 or 100 years, 100 years from now, what is that year? Um, you know, th- that we do have this uh, city where, where governance looks totally different, right? Where, where um, people are able to like self-determine how we share and use resources. Can the work that we're setting ourselves
4: up for in 50 or 100 years mean that there is such a strong and coordinated network of radical and revolutionary people across the city, across sector who feel connected, who feel able to call on each other, who feel um, that they have the tools and capacities to respond when they need to respond to the things that are happening. And I mean, in 50 and 100 years, there's going to be different crises that we're managing and different ways that we're going to have to show up and respond. So hopefully that will not look like organizing against the police
2: because that we would have figured out. I want people to work less <laughs> you know i'd love to see uh you know the, the experiments with like the four-day work week move to like a three-day work week you know and i want the work of, of raising children of growing food um to be done collectively you know that sort of like reproductive labor has become something that we all own together and that there isn't like a class of people for whom like that is the work that they do you know i want the end of capitalism basically.
4: yeah i mean ultimately i i, I really have a dream that Black Detroiters, all Detroiters are housed, have their basic needs met, can be there for each other, are learning and are growing and are contributing to creating the city that we all want every day.
0: Amanda, what makes participatory budgeting part of a freedom dream?
1: I think of participatory budgeting as a really useful tool for getting to the type of society um, that we need, so much of uh, what's wrong in society is the misallocation of resources and you know power being concentrated, wealth being concentrated, and so participatory budgeting is a step um, towards one modeling a world where people get to decide directly over you know key questions, life and death questions about day to day well being. Um, and how resources are spent, but then also it can be, it can result in enormous shifts in resources that are shifting away from things like policing and into things that communities actually decide that they need. So it's not necessarily a a, a freedom dream (laughs) uh, realized, but I think it's an important step towards it and towards practicing a more radical type of democracy than the one that we typically have right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it was for me too is this expansion of democracy. Because I think when we go vote, it's I don't know, I I don't know about you, but I don't think that there's ever been a time for me where I felt like um, really inspired by a politician so much that I think that that's going to bring about change. So we also get set up with these false priorities from the people who are politicians a lot of times, where it's like, all right. Come to this community meeting and you get to vote on whether or not you get three new trees in this park or 50 new cops, right? And it's it's these false <laughs> equivalencies that happen all the time with the people who are creating our city budgets. And so if we get in there and get to set the priorities and figure out what the dollar amount is to execute the vision of the actual community, that feels more... Democratic, it feels more. I mean, obviously, it's harder work, but it is a process that I think people would be more excited to actually participate in than the sort of like go to the polls and then, you know, maybe you get what you want, but usually just sort of are choosing what's there.
1: Yes. And the fact that people come together to brainstorm ideas for what they already know is wrong in their community and they get to decide together. Um, How can we spend money differently in order to make things right? It's much more direct, um, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah. Well, how
1: do people get involved in participatory budgeting? (laughs) So if this sounds exciting, you can link up with people in your city to see how money is being spent. Uh, Many cities and towns across the country already have groups that are you know fighting for a people's budget. So see what's happening in your town and plug into existing efforts. You can also reach out to the Participatory Budgeting Project for training on how to read a city budget and how to set up a PB process. Sweet.
0: freedom dreams is a production of the detroit justice center special thanks to our team zach Rosen, our producer as well as l'oreal west and ilana malu for research and assistance
1: the freedom dreams theme song is by asante artwork is by gunner and hobbs if you want to learn more about today's episode head to freedomdreamspodcast.com email us a voice memo of your freedom dream we would love to hear it Um, send it to freedomdreams at detroitjustice.org you can also write
0: to us on social media. We're Freedom Dreams Pod on Instagram, and Freedom Dream Pod on Twitter. Just one dream on Twitter.
1: <laughs> if you feel compelled to donate to the work that we do, you can find us at DetroitJustice.org/donate.